Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about Alan L. Hart, who was both a doctor and a writer. He became a really prominent figure in the worlds of radiology and tuberculosis control. He did a whole lot of work uh, in uh, giving x-rays to people as a screening measure, uh, both before and after there was a treatment available for tuberculosis. And this turned out to be extremely important in getting people into treatment early so that they could be uh, cured before things got really bad. His novels were also set in the world of medicine. And a lot of them, you know, in addition to be interesting stories to read, offered up some criticism uh, of the discrimination and greed that he felt had become really rampant in the medical world. Um, his books also drew from personal experience. He was born and raised as a girl, but he transitioned to a male identity in his 20s. And he became one of the first people in the United States to have surgery in an effort to transition to a different gender from the one he had been born to. So let's start with his early life. He was born Alberta Lucille Hart on October 4th, 1890 in Hall Summit, Kansas. His parents were Albert and Edna Hart, and Alan was an only child. Alan's father died of typhoid when he was very, very young uh, in 1892, so Alan would have only been two at that time. And he and his mother moved to Lynn County, Oregon, where Edna's family lived. And young Alan often reassured his widowed mother that he would grow up to be a man and take care of her. He was also interested in medicine from a very early age. Until he was about four, he liked to play with dolls, but he didn't really play with them in like a mom capacity. It was more an an imaginative play where he would imagine hospital scenarios for the dolls that he was playing with. This was described a little bit later uh, in a case study by his doctor, Dr. J. Allen Gilbert, who used H as a pseudonym for Allen. And one of the things that Dr. Gilbert said in his case study was this, was a very active child. Did a boy's work about the farm, milked the cows, learned to ride and drive horses, liked to listen to the men who came to the place discussing politics, agriculture, etc. Always played at barn or in tool house unless confined to the house by stormy weather, when store or hospital was the favorite game. Never played house or at being the mother of dolls. At age seven, H refused to play with dolls with small girl visitor, as uh, unless as head and father of the family. He also regarded himself as a boy and thought that he would become a boy if only his family would cut his hair and let him wear boy clothes. And he felt most comfortable when wearing overalls and other boys' clothing. Eventually, when Alan was about four and a half, Edna remarried to a man named Bill Barton. When Alan was seven, the family moved to a farm in Albany, Oregon, which is about 70 miles south of Portland. And when he got a little older, he found himself starting to identify with the male characters rather than the female ones in the romance novels he would read. And as he reached puberty, he began to discover that he was attracted to women. Alan went to Albany College, which later became Lewis and Clark College, and that started in 1908. He developed a somewhat tumultuous relationship with a classmate named Emma Cushman, which went on for a number of years. In 1910, he transferred to Stanford, and he paid Emma's way to go with him because she couldn't afford it herself, and they didn't want to be separated. Stanford is not far from San Francisco, and while San Francisco didn't have the prominent gay culture then that it does today, 
remember this was well before the Stonewall riots launched the gay rights movement, and the Castro was really just a quiet working class neighborhood at the time. Uh, San Francisco still was a much larger city and had a very different culture from Albany. And in this environment, Allen began to dress and act in what was considered a more typically masculine way. Allen transferred back to Albany and graduated in 1912. And... Unfortunately, at this point, he was really deeply in debt for a combination of reasons. One one was that he had developed a gambling habit while at Stanford, and the other was that he was paying for all of Emma's expenses. His relationship was also starting to really show some strain. Some of this was because he really wanted to wear men's clothing on formal occasions, and Emma wanted him to wear dresses uh, when they were going out somewhere nice and also wanted him to behave in a more feminine and restrained way. So their relationship was really starting to have uh, some some strain going on. Yeah. He took a year off and tried to make money as a commercial photographer in an effort to recover from his debt. But the combination of financial and personal stress really took its toll. And at one point that year, Alan attempted suicide. The next year, though, he went on to medical school at the University of Oregon, This later became Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine. Um, He started his medical school in 1913, and he graduated at the top of his class in 1917. And he received what's called the Sailor Medal, which is an award for the person with the most outstanding academic standing in the graduating class. 1918 was a pivotal year in Alan's life. That February, he eloped with a teacher named Inez Clark, using the name Robert Allen Bamford, Jr., He also got his license to practice medicine that year, and he underwent surgery as part of a transition to a male identity. It started when he sought treatment from Dr. J. Allen Gilbert for a phobia of loud noises. Right. A lot of times when you see this referred to, it says that he was seeking treatment because of his attraction to women. But it was actually this phobia that drove him to seek some psychiatric help. In therapy, Dr. Gilbert traced the root of this phobia to an experience that Alan had when he was young, in which he was frightened by the sound of his stepfather's shotgun. The psychoanalysis that followed included things like hypnotherapy and word association. And eventually, based on Alan's responses and reactions, Dr. Gilbert concluded that the problem was related in some way to sex. He later wrote in his case study, which was called, quote, homosexuality and its treatment, that he didn't really expect Alan to come and see him again once he'd spelled this whole hypothesis out. Yeah, he really thought that Alan was going to... That it was going to be divisive and they would not right. have a relationship going He's forward. He was going to be too uh, ashamed by this whole revelation to, to come back to the office. But he did return to treatment about two weeks later. And at the request of Dr. Gilbert, he wrote an autobiographical account detailing uh, his identification with the male gender, as well as his attraction to women and a number of romantic relationships that he'd had. Dr. Gilbert later used a lot of this account in his case study. And at the time, American society viewed same-sex attraction as deeply abnormal, something Alan had discovered while he was in college, which caused him to keep his attractions and relationships a secret. And there was not yet an English word for what is referred to to as transgender today. Right. In the words of Dr. Gilbert, and this was written in his words, which is why it uses female pronouns. After long consideration, she came to the office with her mind made up to adopt male attire in conformity with her true nature and try to face life under conditions that might make life bearable. Suicide had been repeatedly considered as an avenue of escape from her dilemma. Preliminary to the adoption of male attire, she came to me with the request that I remove her uterus with two definite ends in view, 
One, to relieve her of the dysmenorrhea and the inconvenience of dealing with the flow in male attire. And two, to sterilize her. I want to comment on this for a minute. Okay. (laughs) Uh, One is that this description is really common in what you'll read in the stories of transgender people today, uh, as far as living as the gender that they identify with is what makes life bearable to them. Mm -hmm. Um, The other is this kind of shocking to today's point of view that that part of the purpose was to be sterilized. Um, And this really drew from the eugenics movement, which was still going on at the time. And the idea that anybody who had some kind of mental defect or inversion should be sterilized. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, this uh, whole hysterectomy that he went through. Yeah, because in some ways, while it was achieving what he he wanted and viewed himself as, there's also the recognition that somehow that was still flawed. Right. Which is, it is, it's a troubling conundrum, and I can't imagine how tricky that must be to, like, mentally work through. Right. So, although her, there had been some surgeries to reshape ambiguous genitalia for people who had intersex conditions or physical parts of both male and female anatomy, the idea of a sex reassignment surgery also did not really exist in the U.S. at this point. It was uh, a teeny bit better known of in Europe, uh, following experimental sex change surgeries on animals, which is a whole other slightly troubling subject. There's a lot of slightly troubling subject and uh, much of science and medicine in particular involves if you're an animal person it's there's a lot of stuff that has happened to animals along the way that makes it tricky right uh and this being you know kind of a heavyweight topic there's added layers but even so with these experiments happening sex reassignment was still in its infancy even on sort of the most cutting edge areas in Europe. A German doctor named Max Marcuse had published one of the first articles about human sex reassignment surgery as a concept in 1916 after a man who had read about these experiments and wished to change his sex to female had contacted him. The earliest of these surgeries are mostly about the removal of sex organs. There just wasn't a lot of plastic or reconstructive work as a follow-up to create a new set of organs for the opposite gender. One of the first surgeries that did include the construction of new sex organs was still years away. And that involved multiple procedures that were conducted from 1922 to 1931 on a German patient named Dorschen Richter. And this happened at the Institute for Sexual Science in Germany, which is a research institute operated by sex researcher Magnus Hirschfeld, which was later destroyed by the Nazis. Right. Christine Jorgensen was the first person in the United States to become famous for having sex reassignment surgery, but that wasn't until the 50s. So all of these developments in surgery were way far down the line from where things were when when Alan wanted to transition. Yeah, decades later. Uh, So when Alan had his uterus and ovaries removed, he became one of the first people in the United States to undergo surgery for the purpose of gender reassignment. When Alan transitioned to living as a man, he took the name Alan L. Hart, and he opened a medical practice in Gardner, Oregon, which is in the southwest part of the state. But before long, a former colleague saw him and recognized him. And in the words of Dr. Gilbert, quote, then the hounding process began, which our modern social organization can carry out to such perfection and refinement against her own members. As a consequence, Alan and his wife began to move around a lot from this point on just to escape the harassment and persecution and also the job loss that would almost inevitably happen when his gender change was discovered. 
First, they spent some time in rural Montana, and that lasted until the brief depression that followed the end of World War One. And that devastated the local farm economy, and it really took with it Alan's livelihood. So they were already struggling, but at that point, no one could afford to come see him as a doctor. And his marriage to Inez did not survive the financial and personal strain. Uh, in 1923, she left, and they legally divorced two years later. Around this time, Alan started to really be interested in radiology. It was still a relatively new field at this point. X-rays were discovered in 1895. But it took some years of improvements in methods and safety before they were actually really usable for medical purposes. And even when he got into working in radiology, they were mostly being used to kind of examine broken bones. They had not been as much used on looking at soft tissue yet. Right. Alan gradually made a name for himself through his work in radiology and in tuberculosis detection, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast. And he was one of the forerunners in using x-rays to diagnose tuberculosis. He broke new ground, and that allowed for earlier detection and treatment of what had been called consumption up to that point, but right. we would now call tuberculosis. Yeah, and this, as we said earlier, worked out to be really important in controlling tuberculosis, especially a little farther down the line once there actually were antibiotics to treat it. Alan met a social worker named Edna Reddick in 1925, and they got married the same year. And Alan and Edna continued to move around the country, in part to escape persecution, and in part for Alan to continue his education. He eventually got a master's degree in radiology from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's of public health at Yale. And he also did postgraduate work at the New York Postgraduate Hospital. Among his many jobs were working with tuberculosis patients in a sanatorium in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and another one in Rockford, Illinois, serving as director of radiology at Tacoma General Hospital, delivering lectures on public health, and conducting chest x-ray clinics for tuberculosis control programs. He also read the chest x-rays for military recruits that were required before they could join the military. And before we go on to a completely different aspect of his working life, And now let's go back to Alan's writing career. At one point, while he was living in Oregon again, Alan decided to take some writing classes. And his hope was that he would make some money as a writer when he couldn't find work in the medical field. I think this went a lot better than he even could have expected. He became a really successful novelist, publishing four novels between 1935 and 1942. They were called Dr. Mallory, The Undaunted, The Lives of Men, and Dr. Findlay Sees It Through. Most of these books featured idealistic young doctors who were gradually discovering discrimination, greed, and unethical practices in a variety of different medical settings, including family practice, research, and hospitals. And in 1935, he wrote this to a reviewer, quote, The ugly things that have grown up in medicine are the result of the ugliness and falsity of society as a whole, of our American preoccupation with success and making money, of our concentration of effort on the production of things rather than their use for a fuller human life. These things are not the fault of the individual physician, and neither can they be remedied by him. So long as the American people are permeated with the spirit of, I'm going to get mine no matter how, just so long will that attitude filter into all the professions. Doctors are people first and are attracted by the current ideals just as other people are. I feel like someone could have written this yesterday. That's exactly what I think. I mean, people still are writing this. We're yeah. forever trying to kind of pick apart the, what really is the crux of problems in society. And this one has been recurrent for a while. Yeah. 
And the books also uh, included a number of thematic ties to Alan's own struggles with his sexual orientation and his gender and his constant need to move after being recognized or, to use a modern term, outed by his colleagues. And, for example, in The Undaunted, he writes this description of a gay male character. He had been driven from place to place, from job to job, for 15 years because of something he could not alter any more than he could change the color of his eyes. Gossip, scandal, rumor always drove him on. It did no good to live alone, to make few acquaintances and no intimates. Sooner or later, someone always turned up to recognize him. And then there was that wretched business of resigning by request to be gone through again. And after the concoction of the plausible story to account for the resignation and the ordeal of hunting another job without explaining exactly why he had left the old one and, at the same time, without lying about it. Each time he underwent these humiliations, his self-respect seemed first to writhe and then to shrink. The character who this is written of was named Sandy Farquhar. Uh, and this character also goes into radiology, hoping that his sexual orientation will be less of an issue working in a radiology lab instead of in a hospital or other practice with patients. Uh, I think of all of his characters, this is the one that people most often associate with Alan himself and thinks think maybe... Uh, this is a fictional representation of him because it seems so closely to mirror his own life and experiences. And that writing and, you know, likely writing very closely about his experiences seems to have been extremely therapeutic for him. He wrote that he could probably he would probably not have survived without it. And he didn't just write fiction. He also wrote a book on radiology, which was published in 1943 called These Mysterious Rays, a non-technical discussion of the uses of X-rays and radium, chiefly in medicine. In 1945, Alan and Edna moved to West Hartford, Connecticut, where they bought a house, and Alan became the director of tuberculosis control for the state. For the first time in his adult life, he was able to stay in one place for a while. And he actually held that position for 17 years, right up until the end of his life. He started hormone treatments after World War II, which is when synthetic male hormones became available on the market. It's possible that these treatments, which would have made his masculine features more prominent, combined with his long marriage to Edna and the new location to give him a little bit more privacy and security in his professional life. Alan died of heart failure on July 1st of 1962, and he was 71 at the time. He and Edna had been married for 37 years. His body was cremated, his ashes were scattered, and his journals and papers were destroyed, as he had requested in his will. He also requested that no monument be erected in his memory. He seemed to want to just sort of fade away at that point. Yeah, I can imagine someone who has been through what he went through probably did not want his life picked apart after he was gone. No. Edna lived for another 20 years, and when she died, she left most of her estate to the Medical Research Foundation, which is part of the Oregon Health Sciences University, in his memory when she died in 1982. It was intended to go toward leukemia research. His mother had died of leukemia, although I wasn't able to find the date when that happened. In our recent episodes on Jane Addams, we talked about some of the difficulties that come with speculating about a historical figure's sexual orientation when that person didn't leave a clear self-expressed identity. And we've gotten lots of mail about it, and it's come up. Um, but part of this is because identifications and attitudes have changed so radically in the last century, even down to really significant shifts in the language used to describe people's sexuality and their Uh, identities. Right. So it does get really, really tricky. It does. And even though for both Jane Addams um, and Alan Hart, most of their personal papers were destroyed after their death, 
Because of his psychological treatment and his novels, we have a much more personal understanding of Alan's identity uh, than we do of Jane's relationships. There's also been a whole lot of scholarly debate about just how to define Alan Hart. He underwent surgery and transitioned to a male identity before the words transsexual or transgender even existed. The first known use of transsexual was in 1957, and transgender was coined in 1979, so that was a few years before and after his death. Dr. Gilbert's case study is actually a little bit problematic. It was published just two years after Alan's transition, and he gets some points for showing a great deal of empathy and trying to treat Alan rather than just dismissing him as sick or incurable, which was uh, really unusual at the time. Yeah. A lot of doctors would have been sort of dismissive. Uh, and sometimes even today that still happens. But although the case study referred to Alan only as H, he didn't do very much to disguise who he was talking about. And he co-opted a lot of Alan's autobiography, which was written for the purpose of therapy and not intended to be shared with the world. And it included very, very personal thoughts and information. Extremely personal. And it definitely was not a piece of work that Alan was intending for other people beyond his therapist to read. Um it was not clear until much more recently who who H was in Dr. Gilbert's case study. Historian Jonathan Katz is the person who made that connection. And in 1976, Katz wrote a book called Gay American History, which identified Alan as a lesbian, claiming that he was, quote, clearly a lesbian, woman-loving woman who illustrates only too well one extreme to which an intelligent, aspiring lesbian in early 20th century America might be driven by her own and her doctor's acceptance of society's condemnation of women-loving women. In 2012, on the other hand, Katz referred to this designation as a mistake, and he said that uh, instead that it was much more important to think of how Alan considered himself and his own life. So this this more recent line of thought on the part of both Katz and of sort of scholars in general uh, some of it seems to be because the the whole idea of transgender was so new at that point as a as a concept in American consciousness. Like we we didn't so much have the idea uh, yeah. of, of a person feeling themselves to be a different gender as as than than they were born. There were certainly people who felt that way, but it wasn't something that was sort of part of the American language and dialogue. Yeah, I would bet most people had never even heard of it or thought of the idea. Right. It, it, when you read accounts of, of people who transitioned in those earlier years, a, a lot of uh, the description that comes up involves uh, the, the basically the idea of, I didn't even realize that this was a thing that people felt until I realized that I was feeling it. Um, also, uh, there are a lot of modern scholars who feel like this insistence earlier on in uh, in texts that that Alan Hart was a lesbian rather than a transgender person is actually because of transphobia in both the LGBT communities and the medical community. And so if we're going by how he defined himself, after his transition, he referred to himself as a man. And that's full stop. Yeah. And even as a child, it seemed like he kind of referred to himself as a boy. Right. So uh, as far as I'm concerned male at that point. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, in the, at the end of his life he was able to uh, settle in one place for a while and, and maybe find a little more peace than he had had earlier on. Yeah, especially um, you know, when you consider like some of the great contributions he made to medicine 
it, it seems such a pity that a person that is working so much to help others is being tortured. Yeah. Well, and at the time, the work that he was doing was really important to public health. Um, once a treatment became available for tuberculosis, it became hugely important to screen people for tuberculosis so that people could be treated promptly and, and we could try to cut down on the, number one, the spread of the disease, and number two, the mortality of the disease. So he did a really a lot of work in trying to screen people en masse for tuberculosis and, and get people into treatment before they even realized that they were sick. So he had huge contributions to, to public health in that way. Sadly, I think all of his books are out of print. <laughs> I couldn't even find, uh, I couldn't even find, like sometimes you can find old books at, at archive.org or somewhere, yeah. and I couldn't even find them there. Um, I did find like, uh, copies of his book on radiology that were being sold through used and rare booksellers for like $145 or something, but I couldn't find scans of that one either. So I think those might be a neat read. I hope that, you know, as as he becomes a more prominent figure in history, which has been the case over the last 10 or 15 years, he's been a name that has come up more often, that maybe someone will find those and either put them back into print or if they are in the public domain now get them into a place where we can read them and yeah. see what they were like. Do you also have listener mail for us? I do. I have a listener postcard. So this postcard is actually a little bit old. Sometimes it takes a while for postcards to get to us. Yes. For some reason. I mean, they will be postmarked a month before month. they show up. <laughs> um, I'm not sure why exactly that happens. But I, have, I have a theory that there's a part of like the Atlanta Central Post Office hub where they just slide off the postcards and they just sit there for a while. I thought maybe you were going to say they were sitting there reading them. Oh, maybe. I'm just making that up. I don't mean to disparage the Postal Service in any way. No. But I just, postcards do seem to take forever. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So we love to get them, but be aware that we might not see them for a while. This one is from Ty and it's dated July 3rd, 1863. And then the 1863 card is crossed out. It says 2013. <laughs> says, hi ladies, greetings from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I'm a huge Civil War buff and flew across the country from the LA area to be here for the celebration of the 150th anniversary of the battle. I've been looking forward to this since I was 13 years old, and I'm 30 now, so it's kind of fulfilling a half lifelong dream. I wanted to share this with you. Today, thousands of reenactors walked the mile of Pickett's Charge ending here at the, quote, high watermark, the closest the Confederacy came to winning the battle and subsequently the war. Today, the Yankees met the Rebs with claps and cheers instead of cannons and muskets. It was an amazing sight to behold. Thanks for all your your Civil War podcasts. And then we get a little heart and a peace sign and a smiley face tie. And the picture on the other side is of the high watermark at Gettysburg. This is very cool. I'm accidentally hitting my microphone with the postcard, so... (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> she's sharing with the rest of the class. Because I'm trying to show everyone uh, this, the cool picture. So I love that story. It is. It's really neat. I remember when that was uh, going on. I my Facebook feed because I do a lot of costuming. It was just filled of like people sadly bemoaning the fact that they had not been able to make it up there for it. So oh. they were they were watching everyone else's feeds that that were there and watching their pictures come through. And let me tell you how much I would rather watch other people in costume doing that because July. Is hot and Civil War attire. If you, especially if you are a woman person, there's some layers, many, many layers. Yes, uh, I would find that to be unbearable. Uh, you know. would not. I love them. You like? Heat I also. don't mind being hot at all. I mean, I live in the South for a reason, right? And I really like all those layers. 
pretty, I don't know. You kind of get like your brain copes with it at that point. Once yeah. you reach a certain degree of like boiling hot, <laughs> you just kind of switch off and go somewhere else. Yeah. Or at least I do. I <laughs> this might be a some symptom of heat exhaustion. So, I like to think of it more like I'm a Navy SEAL. Okay. <laughs> we can go for that. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so. We are at uh, historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we have a pin board on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about one of the subjects that we talked about today, you can go to our website and put the word gender reassignment in search bar and you will find how gender reassignment works. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.